Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute and the Canada Texas Chamber of Commerce. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe and leave favorable reviews. So we have been doing a series of episodes here on Urbane Cowboys looking at politics in other countries. And today we're going to be focusing on our neighbor to the north. No, not Minnesota, uh, Canada. To talk with us about that, we have Sean Spear, who is a Canadian and associate fellow at the R Street Institute. So, uh, Sean, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm a, a big fan of the program, and so it's an honor to be uh, here with you today talking about uh, all things Canada. All right. So Canada is about to have an election coming up in about a month or so, I believe. Uh, so I wanted to talk just a little bit about you know the current political scene. I'm broadly familiar with Canadian politics, so I know that in Canada, whereas in the United States, we basically have two parties, Republicans and Democrats. In Canada, there are two main parties, the Liberals and the Conservatives, but there are also some other parties as well. So how does the political party system kind of shake out there. Yeah, well, let, let me uh, try to give listeners a, a sense of, uh, of our parliamentary system and, and the, the election campaign that, as you say, uh, started in earnest on September 11th. Uh, and Canadians will be going to the polls uh, officially on October 21st. Uh, as you say, we have uh, uh, multiple parties in, in our uh, federal parliament. The two main ones uh, are the Liberal Party, which is presently the government, uh, led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and the Conservative Party, uh, which is the official opposition and led by Andrew Scheer, who inherited the party leadership from Stephen Harper, who was Canada's prime minister for the previous decade, and I should say, uh, in the name of transparency, a, a former boss. And those are the two main parties that are fighting out uh, the campaign. Um, but there are a number of smaller parties uh, which may be uh, highly relevant in this current uh, election cycle um, because of the relatively high probability that we'll end up uh, not with one of the major parties uh, obtaining a majority of seats in the parliament, but much more likely that they'll uh, end up with a minority of seats in the parliament and require support from uh, the smaller parties to to form government and ultimately to advance a legislative agenda. The largest minor party is called the New Democratic Party. It is to the left of the governing liberals who are more centrist, more technocratic. Uh, the New Democrats uh, have a history of, of, of more radical politics, they will uh, end up being uh, almost certainly the, the, the third largest par party in parliament. We then have the Greens, uh, which presently uh, is generating some uh, greater attention than normal um, because of, frankly, the weakness of the New Democrats these days. But the Greens only have one seat in the current parliament, and it seems highly unlikely to me that at the end of this election cycle, they'll have many more than that. And then finally, we have something called the People's Party, which is a new upstart party, a party uh, that has drawn a lot of similarities to uh, Trumpian politics. It's led by a former conservative member of parliament named Maxime Bernier, who 
left the party after losing the leadership to Andrew Scheer. And well, the People's Party is unlikely to pick up any uh, seats in this election, there is a risk that it, it does take some support away from the Conservative Party at the local level, and in so doing, uh, actually pushes some marginal seats into uh, into the, the liberal side of ledger. So all this to say, it's a pretty crowded field. Uh, we have several local races, uh, Josiah Doug, that uh, are three and even four-way races. And without any of the major parties, at least at this stage, pulling away, um, it's the reason why me and, and several observers are anticipating a, a minority parliament, whether that ultimately is led by a conservative government or a re-elected liberal government, I think is really uh, what the next several weeks will determine. Did you mention the block? Are they not around anymore? Well, I, I suppose I have forgotten the block, uh, and that I think speaks to their weakness in Quebec. I, I think it's. Uh, I said that I work for Mr. Harper. Um, I think it is a, a, um, an unappreciated success of Mr. Harper's prime ministership, his emphasis on decentralized federalism, that really uh, contributed to driving the, the Bloc Québécois. Uh, as you alluded to, a, a party committed to the separatism of our province of Quebec, really driving them into uh, the political abyss. I think they're running some candidates in the province and they may pick up some seats, um, but it really is, a, uh, at least at this stage, a spent force in Canadian politics. And you know, no matter where one sits on the political or ideological spectrum, uh, I think as a Canadian, you have to think that's a good thing. Whenever I talk to Canadians about politics, I always have one question that I ask them, and they always look at me like I'm crazy, right? But the, the question is this, why don't the liberals and the new Democrats join into one party, right? And I say that because here in the United States, we have the Democratic Party, and you have in the Democratic Party, you know, folks like Joe Biden or whoever, or some more moderate folks, and then you have... Bernie Sanders and the wild-eyed socialist types, and they're they're in the same party. And it seems like if you put together the liberal vote and the new Democrat vote, if they weren't split between different candidates, then they would win almost all the time. So why is it that you have two different, you know, you have a, a center-left party and then a more-left party, and they can't seem to get on the same page? It's, it's a great question. Um, and the truth is, Josiah, that Mr. Harper won a majority government in, in 2011, uh, in part because of the vote splits on the left that you described. Um, there wasn't a lot of serious discussion in the intervening time between 2011 and the 2015 election campaign about merger on the left. Um, but it seems to me those uh, the calls for uh, consolidation and merger would have uh, increased markedly had the Conservatives been re-elected in 2015 because of the same phenomenon of vote splitting. The fact um, that the Liberal Party was able to win an outright majority in 2015, uh, in part, uh, incidentally, by, by shifting further to the left and crowding out the New Democrats, in effect, pushing the NDP further and further outside of the political mainstream, uh, I think was a signal to Liberal Party supporters um, that that there wasn't a need to consider merger or consolidation, but it's a it's a it's a really astute question. I, I think what we're seeing play out in Canada right now is a, a bit of a, a crisis of identity for the New Democrats. Is the New Democratic Party 
motivated by trying to advance progressive ideas within government, or is it a protest or ideological movement that, in effect, sees its mission as trying to pull the liberals to left? I, I don't think it's figured out what it is, um, but it, it, this crisis of identity is one of the reasons that it is um, it is going to be a more negligent player, negligible player rather, in this election than it has in, in, in recent ones. So you mentioned uh, the possibility of a minority government. Is this a situation where if you have a minority government that you require a, any type of coalition? Or is it simply one party able that with the, the plurality that's able to form the government? It's a good question. It would depend uh, ultimately on the composition of parliament, whether you'd require some kind of formal arrangement versus a case by case one. But if I can just dwell on this point for a second, I've been struck, frankly, um, the lack of uh, media attention or commentary on this issue in the early days of the federal campaign. If you just look at the polling, it seems highly probable um, that we're headed in the direction of a minority parliament. And uh, the Conservative Party, if it ultimately has a plurality of seats but not a majority, it seems to me it will find it very difficult to create a, a working arrangement with any of the other parties. It seems inevitable that in the absence of a Conservative majority, we'll be dealing with a Liberal government working with a combination of the NDP and the Greens. And the reason why that strikes me as so relevant is that this liberal government, government led by Justin Trudeau, is I think even it would self-identify as uh, more pro progressive than past liberal governments. Its predispositions are, are more progressive than the centrism of the liberal party's past. Uh, a government with a progressive predisposition now dependent on New Democrats and Green Party members to uh, advance its legislative agenda, I think would easily produce Canada's most left-wing government, not just in recent memory, frankly, in the country's history. Um, and whether one agrees or disagrees with the type of agenda that it would advance, it strikes me as highly relevant that this is the path that we seem to be whacking, walking backwards into. And I've, I've just been struck by the lack of uh, attention and commentary paid to this uh, likely outcome. So, because I'm sure that most American listeners probably don't have a real grasp on uh, everything that's been happening in Canadian politics, sort of give us a background on, on why is uh, Trudeau polling so poorly? Why has Andrew Scheer been able to, I guess, essentially poll head to head with him, uh, I guess, neck to neck? What's what's dragging Trudeau's poll numbers? It's, it's a great question. And, and if I if I may, it's worth uh, as succinctly as possible, starting with Mr. Trudeau's uh, election in 2015. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the liberal election in 2015 was somewhat of a surprise. The liberals had been for the first time in the party's history, in third place after the 2011 election campaign. And as the party grappled with how it could restore its competitiveness, it chose in a new leader, Justin Trudeau, a young, dynamic, charismatic, progressive, who uh, listeners will probably know is the son of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, um, Canada's most successful yet polarizing prime minister of, of the last 25 years of the, of the 20th century. Uh, Mr. Trudeau came to power riding on a wave of 
what one might call Trudeau mania. And so when he became prime minister in November 2015, expectations were absolutely sky high, in part because uh, the Liberal Party, in trying to jump from third place to forming government, had made a series of audacious commitments in the, in the context of the 2015 campaign. And then, of course, now in government, we're responsible for discharging those responsibilities, commitments on a range of issues, including fundamental electoral reform, uh, major progress on issues related to our uh, Indian or uh, indigenous communities, climate change and, and other issues of, uh, of interest to progressive voters, particularly millennials. And so one of the reasons that Mr. Trudeau enters the 2019 election campaign a bit diminished is simply a function of the sky high expectations in which he first found himself as prime minister. The more direct answer, though, Doug, is a political scandal that has really engulfed Canadian federal politics for the past uh, several months. It's a bit complicated, and I won't bore uh, listeners with all of the minute details, but in a way... Does it involve tweets? Pardon me? can't be a scandal if there's no tweets. No, it doesn't involve tweets. But there is some analogy, though, to uh, to Washington. Um the Mueller investigation, right? I mean, there's the SNC-Lavalin uh, scandal. Exactly. Right? So SNC-Lavalin is uh, one of Canada's few major global companies. It's an engineering company that manages uh, major infrastructure projects around the world, including in developing countries. And SNC-Lavalin was charged for a series of offenses related to bribery and corruption, in particular allegations of bribery involving the Gaddafi family in Libya to secure projects before Muammar Gaddafi's fall as Libyan leader. And the potential for those charges to stick had SNC-Lavalin lobbying the federal government, lobbying uh, the prime minister's office for some kind of legal dispensation to avoid conviction, which would have a series of knockdown effects, including um, possible prohibition on um, on federal contracts. What's interesting, just in a nutshell, for you and your listeners, is that our attorney general refused to budge, um, refused to introduce or, or um, create a mechanism that would avoid prosecution. And we now have overwhelming evidence that Mr. Trudeau and members of his core team spent considerable time exerting pressure on our attorney general to, to uh, intervene on behalf of SNC-Lavalin and ultimately involve the resignation of the attorney general and her exit from the Liberal caucus. And the outcome has been that Mr. Trudeau's kind of Teflon political identity has been seriously damaged, uh, so much so that if you would have told me four years ago that he'd be limping into a re-election campaign with a serious prospect of losing government, I would have said uh, that was a, a poor bet. And now, well, I think it's still ultimately probable that Mr. Trudeau will win at least a minority government. Um, uh, the fact that he uh, could lose his government after only four years speaks to the severity of uh, the allegations and the extent to which it's harmed 
his reputation uh, within uh, Canadian, the Canadian public. I want to kind of put this in context a little bit, because I think that if we compare this to, say, the Mueller investigation in the United States, there is an argument that the U.S. Attorney General works for the president. And while it may be unethical for the president to put pressure on uh, prosecutorial decisions, it's a little bit different in Canada, is my understanding, is it's more enshrined in the constitutional order. And there's this something called the Shawcross Doctrine, where it's more than just sort of taboo for the prime minister to apply this pressure on the attorney general. Arguably, this is a violation of civil law and that there's a constitutional rule against that. So it's it's a greater scandal than it might be in the United States. Do you care to comment on that? No, I think that's the right characterization. Uh, the, the, the two reasons that people have been so offended by the allegations of political interference is the one that you just described, the fact that it challenges the constitutional principle of prosecutorial independence and the role of our attorney general. The second, uh, and I, 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 I say this is a close second, is that the Liberal Party uh, well, it's been the dominant party in Canadian politics, really dating back to Confederation. Its um, political kryptonite is its perception of entitlement, coziness, cronyism, and so on. Uh, it's the reason Mr. Harper was elected in the first place in 2006, because of another scandal involving major corporations and so on. And the fact that uh, SNC-Lavalin seemingly was writing legislation, was being given tremendous access to the prime minister uh, and his core team, all in an effort to avoid prosecution for criminal charges that on the face of it are impossible to defend. I, I think it, it reminds people the, the reason why they uh, have misgivings about the Liberal Party to begin with. And I think there is a, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe there is also sort of perception of a I guess uh, on one hand, there's the uh, the gender issue, the attorney general being female, that's sort of being forced out a uh, one of the cabinet members who is uh, female, but also she's, uh, correct me if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly, Métis, so French, First Nations mix. And so there is a sort of a bit of a racial dynamic to this as well. Yeah. Um, so Jody Wilson-Raybould, our outgoing um, attorney general who was at the center of this scandal, as you say, uh, is um, one of the hot, most high-profile Indigenous leaders in the country and the first Indigenous woman to be appointed Attorney General, something that her and various Indigenous leaders across the country, and of course, indeed, in, Indigenous people more, more generally, were proud of. I don't think uh, one can uh, overstate the extent to which Minister Trudeau's political identity is wrapped up in perceptions of uh, his commitment to feminism, wrapped up in, his, in perceptions of his commitment to indigenous issues. And as you say, Doug, this issue went to the heart of his credibility on, on, on those files. And, and so uh, it's the reason we find ourselves now a handful of days into an election campaign um, and the conservatives and liberal parties uh, really uh, neck at neck. So I'm listening to some CBC radio, courtesy of SiriusXM, uh, over the summer, you know, months before the, the election. CBC radio, uh, there were conversations about whether this might result in the removal of Justin Trudeau. Maybe that's just sort of hype from hearing so much talk about impeachment in the United States. Was it ever that serious? 
I don't think so. And the, the, the reason comes back to something I said earlier. I, 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 I think listeners need to understand that Mr. Trudeau and his charisma and his dynamism and his personality were at the core of the Liberal Party going from third place in 2011 to uh, forming majority government in 2015. His caucus grew from roughly 35-ish members of parliament to 177 in one election cycle. All of those new members of parliament owe their political ascendancy to him. And so there was uh, no doubt a lot of grumblings about the way the prime minister and his team were handling the SNC-Lavalin scandal. And more generally, I think, uh, dissatisfaction uh, with aspects of his prime ministerial leadership. But his coattails are at the core of the Liberal Party's proposition uh, to Canadian voters. Uh, and so I don't think any um, insinuations about him stepping down uh, were very serious. So I spend a decent amount of time working with Canadian companies uh, as an attorney and that's also prompted me to, to spend some time in Alberta. And as you probably know, the Alberta economy is, is really suffering right now because effectively the, the oil sands are, are trapped in the ground and they're not able to move the product uh, because of uh, the Keystone Pipeline, for instance, still hasn't been built. And another pipeline, which would be moving to the west of British Columbia, has been highly controversial. And that's the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And it's my understanding that essentially British Columbia had blocked Alberta from building a pipeline. And now the Trudeau government has tried to step in and, and maybe make some accommodations. So talk about some of these provinces that are a little bit more oil rich, how they're viewing the Trudeau administration and maybe some of the resentment there. And I think that Josiah is likely to follow up with some questions about uh, the carbon tax as well. Yeah, it's a great question. As you allude, Doug, there's, a, there's sort of an intersection here between uh, resource development and, and climate policy that at least is tangentially related to the question of the Trans Mountain Project. Uh, I think for American listeners, it's important to understand that we have in the provinces of Saskatchewan and Alberta a significant oil and gas industry. There are natural resources in other parts of the country, including British Columbia, parts of Ontario and uh, our East Coast. But uh, the oil and gas sector is uh, disproportionately in the provinces of Saskatchewan and Alberta. And we've been facing uh, increasing internal challenges to pipeline construction um, that is causing our oil rich provinces, our oil producing provinces to at minimum earn less profit on the exportation of their natural resources because of our dependence on the American market and at maximum threatening uh, investment in the industry, which has had significant impacts on uh, in, in employment in those two provinces. So the politics of pipelines has become an issue for this prime minister that I suspect he wouldn't have anticipated when he was elected in 2015. The, the two major obstacles to um, pipeline construction are first, as you say, uh, Doug, um, because Alberta and Saskatchewan are landlocked, to get their energy exports to external markets, particularly in Asia, they need to go through a pipeline to our West Coast. And the province of British Columbia has resisted or blocked pipeline construction for a host of uh, environmental concerns or environmental issues. 
The, the second, and in a way more fundamental obstacle, has been issues in around indigenous consultation and indigenous affirmation of um, energy projects. Virtually every proposed energy pipeline for construction runs through contested land. In some cases, uh, I, I, I don't think uh, American listeners can even appreciate this, in some cases involving dozens of affected First Nations communities. And in, in a lot of instances, you'll have competing claims on land through which the pipeline is running. And even then, you can, it can involve some communities who are pro-pipeline and some who are opposed and uh, it has created a real investment chill. Trans Mountain Pipeline, as you say, which is, at, at a time looked like the most promising pipeline project, has been wrapped up in a combination of these issues, both opposition from the BC government, as well as legal challenges by indigenous communities. It became such a flashpoint in um, the Canadian political environment that the Trudeau government took the extraordinary step to actually purchase the pipeline from its private sector proponent who had grown tired of the, the legal and regulatory challenges. And so now we are proud owners of an of a oil and gas pipeline whose construction timelines are at present indeterminate. Uh, and so that's a long way of saying that the politics of pipelines, the politics of resource development uh, have become a dominant issue in Canada so much so that we're witnessing rising levels of resentment in our Western provinces, uh, so much so that we've seen polling that shows that Albertans are more predisposed to the notion of separating or separatism than even within, even within Quebec. I was just going to say, just before, uh, I, I know that Josiah wants to ask a question about carbon taxes, but uh, you mentioned uh, some of the First Nations and their response to some of these uh, proposals to build pipelines. The Fraser Institute actually has a really interesting uh, piece that they wrote recently, I guess just last year, on the, uh, the Fort McKay First Nation and how they were very much predisposed or at least came to terms with some of the pipeline companies. And anyone who's interested in reading up on that, that was a, I'm sure you could receive that from the Fraser Institute, but I found that really interesting, just how these companies were able to, to come to terms with some of these First Nations peoples. But again, as you said, it's gonna be a matter of negotiating with each one of these groups. It's, it's certainly a thorny issue, and I wouldn't wanna leave, as you say, Doug, the impression um, that all First Nations communities are obstinate. There are uh, some progressive communities that are partnering with uh, natural resource companies to the benefit of their citizens uh, in the form of investment and employment and so on. But because so much of British Columbia in particular was not subjected to um, treaties um, back at uh, first contact, so much of uh, the affected geography is uh, subject to uh, legal uncertainty these processes are complicated and protracted, and the, the net effect is uh, to put real pressure on Canada's energy sector. And I'd welcome the chance to come back and talk to you about that someday. I, I think it has enormous political economy implications, including but not limited to harming an economic outlet for Canadians without post-secondary education to fully participate in the economy. Uh, the truth is our labor market performance would, would look, particularly for men without post-secondary qualifications, would not look that different from parts of the American Rust Belt for it not 
the uh, strength of our natural resource sector over the past 15 years or so. The challenges that we're witnessing right now in Alberta and Saskatchewan, I fear will start to expose some of the labor market challenges that, uh, that you've been facing there and for which we've received a bit of a respite because of the strength of, uh, of our oil and gas sector for the past 10 or 15 years. Yeah, so I do want to ask about the carbon tax, but before I get to that, you raise an interesting point about you know the similarities or lack of similarities between Western Canada and the American Rust Belt, because throughout most of the developed world in the past half decade or so, we've seen a increase in uh, the prevalence of you know various populist or nationalist type political movements, and the story goes that. For whatever reason, Canada seems to be exempt from that. So my question is, one, is Canada somehow exempt from the rise of populism? And if so, what do you attribute that to? It's a great question. I would say thus far, we have been by and large um, inoculated from the rise of populism. Uh, I think part of that, uh, well, there's a whole host of reasons that maybe to just to be as succinct as possible. The first is that our immigration system is by and large legal, is by and large uh, merit-based. We use a point system, and so it is pretty uh, hyper-focused on Canada's economic needs rather than other considerations. Uh, I think that has helped to uh, protect public support for large levels of immigration. I often say that we've achieved something few other countries have, which is relatively high levels of public support for relatively high levels of immigration. And I think a big part of that is because of the uh, the, the strength of our legal immigration system. The second, and this may be controversial for some listeners, particularly on the American right, we have fairly restrictive um, political financing rules in Canada. And one can agree or disagree with them from a a first principles point of view. But I I think one of the effects is that it does keep uh, the political class more rooted in the interests and concerns of uh, regular people. Our our fundraising limit, uh, so first of all, there's a restriction on corporate or union donations. The limit that an individual can contribute is $1,500. So our political parties are really dependent on uh, low-level grassroots fundraising. As I say, there are strengths and weaknesses in the model, um, but I think one of the virtues is it keeps our political class more connected to what's going on in the ground. Uh, And I think those are just two of the reasons we've not witnessed the the flare-up of disruptive politics witnessed elsewhere. Okay, so now at long last, let's talk about the carbon tax because uh, so this is one of the issues that has been a focus of the campaign. Alluded to earlier that when the Trudeau government came in, one of the issues that they were going to really tackle was climate change. So what exactly did they do on that, and how, how is it? It's a little complicated. It, it, it is complicated, but you're right to zero in on it. Not not just because I know it's an interest of yours, society, but because it it does represent one of the few major fissures or fault lines in the campaign. The truth is, uh, notwithstanding the rhetoric. Our politics are animated by a series of common positions where there may be some differences on the margin. The politics of carbon tax is slightly different. It it does, at least broadly speaking, seem to be a more fundamental issue. As you say, 
the, the previous government, the Harper government, uh, chose a climate abatement policy that was mostly rooted in what it described as sector by sector regulations. Um, so it went about promulgating emissions caps by sector. And the hope was that those regulations would be designed in, in, in partnership with the U.S. The Trudeau government came to power with a different model. It was committed to introducing uh, carbon pricing or carbon taxation. But it, it, it had, a, as, you, as you kind of allude in your question, a, a sort of a, a complicated way of going about it. It set basically a framework and enabled uh, provinces, we have uh, 10 provinces and three territories, to design their own carbon tax or carbon pricing system that could stand as long as it conformed with the federal framework. Uh, and the federal framework um, set conditions around the breadth or the base of the carbon tax, as well as the price going from $10 per ton to $50 per ton in the coming years. Uh, several provinces have challenged the federal government's constitutional authority to set intergovernmental framework along these lines. It's been the subject of a series of court decisions advanced primarily by conservative uh, governments at the provincial level who are using constitutional arguments, but frankly, are motivated by opposition to the carbon tax more generally. In a way, Josiah, those court cases, uh, while they continue to weave their way through the, the court system, it seems to me that the, 25th, the 2019 election campaign will, for all intents and purposes, uh, render judgment. If Justin Trudeau wins re-election, running explicitly on a proposal for a carbon tax, then I, I think we will it will become a permanent feature of Canada's climate policy. If he loses government, if Mr. Scheer and the Conservatives win, then I think that will, for all intents and purposes, remove carbon taxation as a feature of Canadian climate policy going forward. Um, if I could just make one observation, I'm sorry, sorry for rambling a bit. But I, I think it's important for listeners. Well, I said that this seems on the face of it to be a fairly fundamental debate, one of the few ones in this campaign. The truth is that even overstates things in a way for the following reason. Um, Mr. Trudeau and the Liberal government, well, they have a carbon tax as part of their abatement policy. They also have a range of other measures, including regulations and subsidies and, uh, um, and, 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 and other measures that uh, form the basis of their overall plan, so much so that one scholar has estimated that the carbon tax will um, be responsible for about 15 percent of uh, the overall emissions, uh, emission reductions under the, the government's plan. So in other words, these other abatement policies will be responsible for the vast majority of emission reductions, in large part because the government has um, has capped the carbon tax at no higher than $50 per ton. On the other hand, the conservatives, well, they uh, are uh, rhetorically opposed to the carbon tax in the strongest way possible. The truth is they have, for all intents and purposes, committed to a carbon tax um, that would apply to industrial emitters. They call it a carbon levy, and the, the proceeds would go back to uh, industrial emitters for innovation and so on. But they have at least accepted the premise of carbon taxation. Um, they're really, uh, at, at their core, opposed to the breadth of the, the base of the current federal carbon tax. So I, I, it's unpopular to say in some conservative circles 
in which I travel. But the truth is, um, we're not fighting over whether the, there ought to be a federal carbon tax. We're fighting over what the base ought to be uh, and ultimately what other policies ought to be in place to, to augment the carbon tax in the name of achieving Canada's climate policy. So I hate to, I hate to disappoint you and your listeners. Um, this is a, a, a bit less of a provocative or controversial uh, issue than the, the rhetoric seems to suggest. Like so many other issues in Canadian politics, it's ultimately being fought uh, within the 40 yard lines. All right. I'm going to, so we're now going to go to the lightning round phase of the show. Uh, I know we've, we've kept you a while, but I'm going to ask you four more questions. Um, I'll be as brief as possible. All right. So I understand that Quebec has, they have issued a new law on secularism and that this is becoming controversial and is sort of bringing religion into play in this in this election, which I think under, you know, in, in normal times in Canada would sort of be uh, outside the bounds. Talk a little bit about this, and is this going to be a factor in the, uh, in the upcoming election? I'll, I'll be as brief as I can. Uh, the Quebec government has passed something called C-21, which prohibits religious expression for those working within the, the Quebec government. It ought to be a scandal, in my view. Um, it ought to be something that all the major party leaders at the national level are challenging precisely because it, it represents uh, a contravention of, of conscious rights, of religious rights. The truth is the, the province of Quebec represents about 75 seats at the national level. And so instead of getting full-throated defense of religious liberty from our major party leaders, including uh, Mr. Scheer and Mr. Trudeau, who both are uh, uh, ostensibly Catholic, We've heard mostly silence, and so regrettably, this issue will be less of one than it, than it ought to be. How is the Canadian economy overall, and how is that going to affect the election? It's a good question. Uh, the, the Canadian economy has performed reasonably well. I think uh, Mr. Trudeau can reasonably argue that uh, our overall economic output uh, and our labor market has performed well uh, under his prime ministership. On the same token, there are some worrying signs. I mentioned earlier the ongoing struggles in our oil-producing provinces, um, as well as a, a federal deficit uh, that, well, uh, nothing of the magnitude uh, of the deficit uh, in, in Washington is still much higher than Mr. Trudeau promised when he was first elected in 2015, and it's certainly um, an issue that the that the Conservative Party uh, is seeking to prosecute. Talking about the Conservative Party, we've we've described to Justin Trudeau is who is Andrew Scheer? A Andrew Scheer uh, is a, a former member of the Harper government. Uh, he also served as Speaker during the previous four years in Parliament. He's relatively young. He has a large family. He would be what you might describe in the U.S. context as a full-spectrum conservative, from fiscal issues through to um, social conservative predispositions. He's someone, I think, who, uh, since becoming leader, has uh, made real progress in terms of his ability to communicate and to connect with the Canadian public. Um, but it's fair to say that it is difficult for any leader uh, to compete with Mr. Trudeau's charisma and dynamism. Um, and uh, so we'll be having our uh, our first major leaders debate uh, involving both the Prime Minister and Mr. Scheer in the, in the next several days. And I think it'll be a major test, both in terms of introducing themselves to the Canadian public and also 
on his ability to take on uh, Mr. Trudeau head to head and and to prosecute his case against the government. In final question, uh, Josiah often likes to, to finish by asking a lighthearted question about your favorite movie. And I want to ask you your favorite Canadian movie. I think the correct answer clearly is Yoga Hosers, which I think is the greatest Canadian movie of all time. Apart from Yoga Hosers, what do you think is the best Canadian movie? And maybe for an American perspective, what would give an American the, the best uh, reflection of Canada? Huh. It's a good question. I haven't seen Yoga Hosers, uh, and so I, I know what uh, my homework is after the call, uh, after the podcast. Uh, the one that instinctively comes to mind is a film called One Week, which is uh, it stars Joshua Jackson, who, amongst other things, was Charlie Conway in the in the Muddy Ducks trilogy, um, and he's a Toronto-based teacher who learns um, uh, that receives a cancer diagnosis and decides to travel from coast to coast to get away and, and to, to reflect. And I don't know of a film that better captures uh, the, 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 beauty of, the beauty of Canada. And so for that reason, uh, I would uh, recommend it to your, to your listeners. But also see Yoga Hosers. <laughs> After we recorded our initial conversation, there was some late breaking news in the election, which is uh, old photographs surfaced of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau back in 2001. I guess he was at a costume party or something. And it seems to be kind of a habit on on both sides of the border. It's been described as blackface, uh, although I believe he was dressed as uh, some sort of like Arab prince or something. He was clearly you know, wearing makeup to alter his appearance racially or whatever. So this has obviously created a big firestorm. What impact do you think this is going to have on the election campaign? Well, for American listeners, Josiah, this is about as close to a political bombshell as we have here in Canada. And I wouldn't wouldn't want to uh, understate its explosiveness. Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, entire political persona um, is rooted in um, his commitment to diversity, uh, his defense of minorities, uh, an effort on the part of the liberal government to juxtapose their comfort with uh, immigration and diversity. And uh, even I think he used intersectionality in his apology last night vis-a-vis the conservative party, which they implicitly or explicitly characterize as at best, discomforted by diversity, and at worst, xenophobic and racist. And so this as right, goes right to the heart of Justin Trudeau's political identity. So I, as I say, I wouldn't want to understate how explosive this will be. We're now 24 hours in um, to the scandal. We've observed some government candidates, so either current MPs of the liberal government or candidates running on the liberal banner expressing discomfort. The third party leader, uh, that is the New Democratic Party's leader, Jagmeet Singh, is himself of Southeast Asian descent. Uh, and I thought he was tremendously effective uh, in responding to the scandal yesterday. Uh, and so I, I suspect we'll see some liberal support in the coming days lead to the New Democrats, uh, which isn't just good for the New Democrats. Just, it's good for the conservatives as well, because we have two parties on the left, as we discussed uh, in the original podcast. A stronger NDP means more vote splits on the left, which uh, invariably uh, is in the interests of conservatives in a lot of ridings where we have three-party races. So I, I really think that this scandal, uh, now less than 24 hours in, uh, may reshuffle the deck. Uh, we were 
on a trajectory to a close race between the Conservative Liberals, one that could produce a minority government on either side, but probably on balance tilted in favor of the Liberals. Uh, I, I, I think it's reasonable to believe that this issue um, is going to dominate in the days to come uh, and will leave the prime minister diminished um, and create new opportunities, both the New Democrats and the Conservatives. But just most fundamentally, uh, uh, this was a kind of Seinfeld-like campaign thus far, a campaign really not animated by any issues. And um, as it so often happens in campaigns, we now have an animating issue and one that um, I think uh, represents uh, a, a direct challenge to a prime minister who's been mostly wearing Teflon throughout his political career. So I heard a commentator uh, on a Canadian radio program earlier today describe this as sort of uh, analogous to the Access Hollywood tape from the 2016 election, uh, which I assume you're familiar with. And of course, of course, Trump went on to win that election uh, despite that. But there was a period of time there where if America had a parliamentary system where the Republican members of Congress or whatever had the power to dump the presidential candidate, I think after that, they might have done it, right? So in Canada, is there is there any prospect that the Liberal Party might decide, uh, well, we, we just need to get rid of Trudeau and favor another leader? Or, or is it just, you know, He's got so much built-in loyalty and, you know, logistically, he's so tied with the party that, that that wouldn't make much sense. Well, it's a great question, and there has been some speculation about that. There are uh, – the, the government caucus, the government cabinet is quite strong, and so there are plausible people who could step in and in many ways do as good or better job than, than the prime minister, even within the liberal ranks themselves. I, I think that's probably not a likely scenario um, the timelines are so short. Remember, the election itself is on October 21st. So much of the liberal campaign is predicated around uh, the leader. Uh, and so just practically speaking, um, replacing him and having to adjust, uh, I think, would be, uh, would, would be a, a, a difficult task. And so I think for better or for worse, the liberals will go into the election on October 21st, led by the prime minister. Just on the comparison between the two incidents, uh, well, they're similar in the sense that they were both explosive. Where I think this one is different, Josiah, is that in the case of the excess Hollywood tape, I mean, for, for, for most, by and large, it affirmed what they thought about Donald Trump, even amongst his supporters in a lot of ways. In this case, this is so inconsistent, so incompatible with the persona that Justin Trudeau has sought to cultivate. Um, this is a, a party and a leader who uh, his critics would say engages in identity politics and his supporters would say is attuned uh, to the modern Canada and all its diversity and, and uh, heterogeneity. I, I think this has in, in some ways the prospect of being more fundamental and more explosive than the Hollywood access tapes for, for, for that reason. Okay, well, we'll have to, to monitor closely the events as they develop. So, Sean, thank you for coming back, and thank you for the whole conversation. Thanks to, to you, and, and thanks for your listeners for, for uh, taking an interest in Canada and what was a sleepy election, but now uh, uh, appears to be uh, one that's generating international attention. This isn't the real world. This is Canada. Canada.